Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So I apologize for my absence over the past couple of weeks. I've been interning at ConocoPhillips and as well as doing some traveling by myself. So I should be more consistent for uh, these episodes here on out. So definitely expect weekly episodes um, for the rest of the summer and, and and from there. So just going into it, uh, looking at where oil prices have been over the past few weeks, as well as just the energy industry in general, as well as some trends that have been occurring Um, So oil prices have continuously been increasing over the past few weeks, and this is really does fit within the big narrative um, about commodity prices across the board marching higher. Lumber prices, for example, have doubled over the past year, and it kind of brings into question, well, why would lumber double over the past year? And really, we forget that as the world continues to reopen, kind of fitting within this big story about vaccinations and all those things. Um, commodities, oil, lumber, um, copper, steel, you know, a bunch of commodities do sit at the foundation of products that make our life possible. Um, And as we continue to get out of this pandemic, we're seeing those commodities being more and more in demand. And then you throw on top of that the challenge and logistical issues with the coronavirus and and how the cost of freight has gone up and all of those things and just logistics are really complicated given the current dynamic where we have some countries like the U.S. really reopening. I mean, here in Houston, for example, you would think that the pandemic is over, but then you read the news about what's going on in India and Brazil and, and other countries that are not as fortunate with how COVID has gone for them. Um, it's just very not a not a kind of apples to apples comparison about how things are going. So anyways, the prices of these things have continuing, have continued to rise. uh, And you have seen concerns in the news as well as some reports about inflation and consumer product prices rising. Um, So kind of a lot of things to unpack here. We have seen really unprecedented money printing happening by the federal government as well as the fed um, over the past, really since the pandemic began um, so it's really expected for the prices of things and inflation to continue to increase as we go forward. And also kind of going back into the world reopening, people just have money to spend now. So there's more demand for products than combining with what I just said about how there's logistical challenges. So prices are being passed on to consumers, which can be seen as consumer prices increasing, which maybe it's not exactly the case. And also... Whenever we look at prices for products um, and compare them to a year ago, we have the Consumer Price Index, which does comparisons to a year ago. Well, remember, a year ago was June 13th, is when I'm recording this, June 13th of 2020, whenever the world was much, much different as it is today, especially here in the U.S. And also, people just want to spend money now. So whenever we're looking at even like gasoline, as we're in this summer, Um, travel season, people are going to national parks and all those things uh, here in the U.S. And also whenever we have domestic travel increasing and increasing, I think the TSA just announced that they have more passengers now for domestic airfare than they had pre-pandemic. So again, jet fuel demand there. So it makes sense why we're seeing commodity prices and oil prices um, increase in value. And Looking at a little bit more finance reason on why 
oil prices have been increasing is that oil is considered a hedge on inflation. So if you're an investor at all concerned about inflation, um, which thinking about all the money printing that's been going on and the stimulus and, all, and the stimulus that we expect to see in the future and the bigger role that government is likely going to play in all of our lives, especially in the U.S. and also just internationally, you'd want to invest in something like gold, oil, or even arguably Bitcoin. And whenever we want to hedge inflation, we're investing in those. We're putting more and more dollars into that bet. So we're seeing some possibly speculative bets on oil whenever we're trying to hedge for inflation as a maybe a hedge fund investor or something along those lines. Um, so that's why we're kind of seeing a run-up in oil prices to that $70 barrel $70 per barrel range for WTI. And then also you just take into account people just have money to spend now and investors want to bet on things and people are looking for yield and whenever you can't get that in the bond market. You know, you, you hear about the whole GameStop, uh, GameStop, AMC, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, all of those things. There's just a lot of money sloshing around the market right now. So some of that could be pouring into oil and and commodities in general. So also thinking about also thinking about um, OPEC, so they have continued to be accommodating in their oil outlooks as well as uh, looking at their production numbers. Um, so they're really not vastly increasing um, their production of oil. And for those that don't know, OPEC combines a bunch of different countries that comp- that comprise of much of the world's oil supply. So kind of rewinding back to um, when the pandemic began a little bit later, um, OPEC and Saudi Arabia, which is OPEC's leader, scaled back production quite a bit in order to support prices. So just kind of less, there's less demand. So if we lower supply, um, we should ideally influence prices. And that's basically what's happened and now they're slightly reversing course. Now, now that we are um, coming out, you know, coming out of the pandemic, um, so they're bringing back production as they have said that they would, and they are doing through the months of May through July by two million barrels per day. So they're basically like reopening the taps, as people say, to two million barrels per day and bringing that back onto the market. And looking back at 2020, oil consumption actually declined by 8.6 million barrels per day. So basically everybody, and I say everybody, I mean oil market participants, OPEC, the the IEA, the EIA, U.S. oil companies, um, investors in the market, expect oil demand to continue to recover this year and definitely accelerate into past the pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2023. And then beyond is really, you know, anybody's guess. Um, and where that will head and it'll be interesting to see this decade how that influences the energy industry because there's a lot of um, claims or promises by 2030 will be net zero or by net zero or by 2030 we'll do this or that as far as the energy transition goes so it'll be interesting to see kind of after that 2023 time frame whenever Ideally, the we can kind of sit here and laugh about COVID and all of those things. Um, 
to see once the oil market stabilizes through that time period, what happens after that. So some have called on OPEC um, to actually increase their production uh, and to really kind of hedge off and slow down the run up in prices that we've seen to a more natural um, price point. I can't really tell you exactly what this price point will look like, um, but there is often thought of as sort of a, a point or a, or, or a ceiling that we can get to before things kind of get out of whack as far as the oil market goes. Because if we see prices run up to 80, 90, de- 90 definitely $100 per barrel, um, we would likely see a lot of production especially from U.S. oil participants in the market, right? Which wouldn't really be good for anybody because it would likely lead to the really pronounced boom-bust cycles that we've grown accustomed to. And I'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but we're in a new age where now we want oil companies and gas companies and energy companies in general to be very responsible with their capital that they're given by investors, right? So... This would not be a good thing if we continue to see oil prices uh, continue to continue to go up. I doubt really the impact of OPEC bringing more production onto the market. I wonder how much influence that would have on oil prices because I already have a hard time dissecting or looking at what I think impact on oil prices will be by certain announcements. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And you know, oftentimes people don't really call on OPEC to increased production it's typically to hopefully support oil prices especially really since i've been following the market um basically since covid began so anyways shifting gears a little bit um looking at a few indicators that we always kind of talk about on the show so looking at rig counts here in the u.s um for the week ended june 11th the rig count increased by five rigs so this is actually up 182 from a year ago so we increased by five from the prior period but comparing to a year ago it's about 182 um and remember the prior year comparison issues you know we're looking at june 2020 if we're comparing a year ago so not not necessarily the best um similar comparison but regardless the increase of this five predominantly came out of the permian basin so out there in West Texas, um, around Midland area, and then also up into New Mexico. So not really surprised there. I mean, as you would expect, um, oil prices increasing. We would see rig counts kind of move relatively in lockstep. And also there's been a bunch of articles that I would encourage you to check out on oilprice.com about how there's been a lot of pipelines coming online and connecting the Permian Basin to other areas, such as Mexico and more on the Gulf Coast. Um, so thinking about those refineries there with oil prices increasing, more connections, likely going to be more rigs to be drilled and end up producing. So now looking at inventories, um, inventories for the week ended June 4th actually decreased by 5.2 million barrels. Um, definitely pretty substantial. Looking at that five-year average that the um, that the EIA puts out, um, the inventories are sitting 4% below um, their normal average for this time period. So certainly interesting there. Um, I'm not sure if this is a continued trend that we're going to see um, with rig counts increasing. That means that production is going to start to increase. So I don't know how that will really influence that. Um, but decreases in this 
in this inventory gauge is a bullish or good sign for the price of oil. Remember, like less coming in on the supply side and then more demand as we come out of COVID should lead to oil prices continuing to increase. So shifting gears a little bit towards the articles that I always talk about, um, I want to just look at a couple developments that have happened over the past few weeks as I have been absent. And again, I apologize, but I will be more consistent going forward. So looking at a couple of these developments high level, really focusing on BP and then Exxon. So I read an interesting article actually this morning that BP is planning to spin off its operations in Rumaila oil field. I don't know if I'm butchering that or not, but it's uh, one of the world's largest oil fields and it's in Iraq. So they're spinning off their interest, their stake in that oil field into a jointly owned company with China National Petroleum Corporation, which is actually a subsidiary of, I believe, one of their largest or their only largest oil company um, in China. So brings into question why BP might do this. And this really does unsurprisingly fit in with BP's plan. I believe they're wanting to be net zero, I think they said by 2050. So it fits in with their plan basically to just decarbonize, right? So they have low carbon plans at BP. So it's interesting because BP has been involved in Iraq or with Iraq since the 1920s. And they were one of the first ones to re-enter Iraq post the U.S. invasion. Um, And it's also one of their largest uh, pieces of their portfolio. So for them to spin this off, it's really signaling to the market like hey we are not only an oil and gas company now we're wanting to really shift gears and we're willing to do so in such a profound and loud way that we're going to spin off our our biggest interest in this massive oil reserve um, into a newly jointly formed company and this new company actually could raise its own debt issue dividends all those things that make normal companies companies Um, and it'll be certainly interesting to see and the reason why i bring this this development up is what this does for bp's emissions and their esg score i would expect it to be considered its own business separate business from bp considering that they can issue dividends um raise debt all of those things um and i'm wondering if this is going to be a trend where we see some oil and gas companies spin off carbon heavy assets to adjust their ESG score. And then I wonder if this will, you know, be considered greenwashing by some oil and gas companies where greenwashing basically means like, hey, we're going to announce that we're doing all these things to shift towards a, uh, a cleaner future, but we don't actually do a whole lot. And I'm not saying at all that that's what BP is doing. I'm just saying I wonder if that's going to be like a new headline one day where it's now all these oil and gas companies are following BP's lead. And I wonder if that could be an issue. And I'm and I'm all for these uh, oil and gas companies shifting and and making themselves um, leaner and meaner going into the future. And that's what oil and gas companies need. We need a a remodeling of investor perception of oil and gas companies. And I can t- tell you from firsthand experience at ConocoPhillips, people really do care about the climate and the future for their kids and, and, the, and their kids after that. And it's 
people at oil and gas companies are a lot more forward looking than many investors, or at least is the is the perception in the market. Um, so it's a broad shift, I would say, in thinking by oil and gas companies. Just thinking about this BP example and thinking what I've learned at Conoco and also what I've just learned about following the industry, there's this huge new thing, and it's kind of funny to even say this, but there's a huge new focus on returning cash to shareholders, right? Gone are the days where oil and gas companies are focusing just on expanding reserves and then production, right? We have to be more nimble now. And this is the new normal, and I hate using that word, but this is the new normal for oil and gas companies. The market will certainly punish those that don't focus on sustainability. And no matter how you feel about sustainability or climate change or ESG, it's it's been it's too big to ignore now and shareholder returns will certainly be influenced by how the market perceives oil and gas companies so i hope that this continues to to shed a positive light and that's really the purpose of the show is to shed a positive light on the industry and also i just like kind of nerding out about it so uh anyways next up what i wanted to talk about and as some have probably heard i want to talk about engine number one and their quote-unquote battle with Exxon. So there's an activist hedge fund, um, quote activist. They don't really call themselves activist hedge fund, but I'm going to call them an activist hedge fund called Engine Number One. And they're actually named after, Engine Number One's named after a California fire station that's actually close by to the hedge fund's office. But that's neither here nor there. So anyways, they, in effect, led a activist campaign to install three board members on Exxon's board of directors. And, you know, you might hear about some Carl Icahn, for example, installing, you know, three board members on Exxon, but that's not the case here. Engine number one only owned 0.02% of Exxon's stock, which is really a drop in the bucket. And they called on the company, Exxon, to cut their expenses on money losing projects in oil and gas and develop a plan for a green future. And there's and there's certainly one thing to keep in mind about oil and gas projects is that some are just more expensive ge- because of where they are geographically or the cost of getting the the product to to market. Those there's a ton of externalities there. Um so when I say money losing projects, it doesn't mean that oil and gas projects are money losing. It's just some specifically are money losing um so yeah where was i so exxon thinking about that them owning 0.02 percent and actually getting three board members installed on exxon's board remember exxon is a massive company i mean they used to be the world's most valuable company and they're really no stranger to activism i mean every company seems to be facing activism these days but they doubled down on um in oil and gas future. Darren Woods has explicitly basically said that. Um, and engine number one saw an opportunity to tap into investor frustration with Exxon's lagging behind returns compared to the S&P 500. And they sought to install some of these new board members due to their belief that some of Exxon's board members actually lacked relevant oil and gas industry experience and it's just really interesting how this was able to happen i mean it's it's almost like a david and goliath scenario and exxon tried to fight 
this comp- this uh, hedge fund in the press and try to get people on their side, but ultimately it didn't work out for them. And I want to read a quote real quick um, from this Wall Street Journal article, which I'll put in the show notes um, for anybody to reference if they would they want to. <laughs> um, so it goes like this, quote, asking an oil company to reduce its emissions was a test of how far an activist could go to challenge a business model, unquote, meaning Exxon Mobil. Right, requote. Uh, it also was one of the first significant tests of the unintended consequences of the rise of index fund giants such as BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. For years, the theoretical fears about these firms was that they would eventually distort prices or destroy competition. Now, now if they voted with Engine, they could show their power to change company. To change a company. They didn't buy these shares to push change the way activists do, but the index funds could assert their power as if they did. So all that to say, well, that was the end of the quote, but all that to say is that these big, massive index funds, by just sheer character of the volume of money that they take in and the volume of money that they invest on behalf of shareholders or investors like you and I, um, they become major holders of companies like Exxon, like Apple, like all of these major companies that really shape and form a lot of um, vast part of our consumer lives. Um, and it's put them in a pretty precarious situation where now they're in a unique spot to make changes at companies if they so choose to do. And I haven't really researched into whether these companies have sought to like influence that perception where they won't do that or they will. Um, but nonetheless, I would imagine, and I don't know if it's public yet, but I would imagine that these companies did vote with engine number one as no company is, is, uh, scot-free from investor, uh, I guess, activism or, or pushing the press. And it really makes me wonder about how much I know that investors like myself want to have a clean future, but I wonder how much is just noise of media articles and really shaping people's perceptions of oil and gas companies because they're really not they don't they're not that bad like people are very very safe at oil and gas companies but it's challenging whenever you see an article that says something like Exxon polluted this much this year and didn't show like how many people that they employed and and what they do to actually like protect and save the environment. So a little, I'm getting a little preachy at this point, but just something to keep in mind. Um, and that's really what I want people to take away from these episodes. And obviously I like talking about it, but um, anyways, it's just, it's just a huge deal seeing a company that owns such a, a hedge fund that owns such a tiny stake of the company, leveraging it, really tapping into investor frustrations with the company actually making changes and then also bringing into question now index fund giants like a BlackRock or Vanguard's role in the energy transition future. And again, I've stated multiple times on the show my view about the future. I think it'll be a fragmented market where we have some traditional oil and gas companies still supplying that need, which we will need for at least the rest of my life. And if you're listening to this, at least the rest of your life. Um, so that will always be a need. Oil and gas and oil is very central to our life. It's in everything. It makes modern life possible. Um, and then also you'll have companies that are kind of in the middle ground, I would say. Um, 
like a ConocoPhillips, right? Like, like where you have we have very traditional oil and gas presence and a bunch of uh, reserves in the U.S. and abroad, and then also a low carbon team really making inroads there. And then you have a company like a Next Era or like all of these green startups or even the green SPACs that you see about in the news um, that are that are making or acquiring these these green companies. And that's going to be a future too. And that really is where the future is. No one's really debating that. But we've got to be careful not to try and punish oil and gas companies because um, I promise you they're not that bad. But anyways, it'll be interesting going forward um, off of my soapbox now. But that is all that I have for today's episode. As always, I will put the relevant show links um, to the articles in the show notes for you to check out. I would really encourage you, encourage you to um, if you have some time. So thank you all for tuning in. Have a great week and I'll see you next weekend.